see that was a heavy explosion. Heavy explosion to the north. That's probably maybe a mile and a half. Maybe about a mile and a half. Alright, let me put this down. So, I mean, at this point, I'm just waiting for artillery fire to come close to our location based on those flares going up. I mean, that, that is literally right up the street from us. That's where we were earlier today. We were driving all through the area. Okay, more, more cannon fire offshore. It's more cannon fire offshore. You can hear the concussion. You hear the cannon fire. You hear the echo. Then you hear the strikes. One, two, three. One, two, three. You're listening to Canary Cry Radio. The United States is our uh, biggest and best friend, and we appreciate this, uh, this connection. However, to ask Israel to restrain itself after uh, receiving over a thousand rockets on our towns, I think that's not exactly the right message. Israel and anyone should not be expected to incur and, and take hits forever. We offered one ceasefire. We offered another ceasefire. Keep in mind where we are. Our land represents well uh, less than half a percent of the entire Islamic world. We're about six million Jews in Israel covered by 300 million Muslims and we're defending ourselves and to ask us to restrain ourselves against a radical Islamic group I, I'm not quite sure that's the right message in any case I'll be very clear uh, Israel uses an iron dome to protect itself but right now we're moving from the iron dome to an iron fist and we'll fight anyone who wants to de destroy the Jewish state in Israel Hey everybody, welcome to Canary Cry Radio. My name is Basil. And this is Gons. Welcome to episode number 072. Zero seven two. Yeah. So we Sorry. have uh, we have a pretty special guest today. But before we do, so special. Yes. Before we do, we wanted to a um, let everybody know a little bit about what Gons has been up to. Some of you might already know, but let's uh, enlighten the rest of you. Gons, what are you doing? <laughs> uh, I've been spending hours and hours and hours writing my first book so it's a lot of hours it's been pretty intense i will tell you that writing a book is different from making a film because you can say something and then you can elaborate and right. then elaborate some more and then yeah and just reference go forever. it and yep you can just and then ramble. you don't have to like edit in sound effects later and oh and video great. and yeah. yeah but it's a whole different animal yeah, well, if anybody out there is like me, their heart rate just went up a little bit when you heard that Gonz was writing a book, and we're also very excited about that. Can you give us a little hint yeah. to what it's about? Yeah, yeah. So uh, I've been looking at this um, secret space program thing, and it's been kind of a big deal with uh, a conference that happened out in San Mateo a few weeks ago. I live-streamed it, so I was able to 
tap in on all the the talks there. It's a you know secular group, but they're discussing some of the things that are pretty cutting edge as far as the research goes. But in essence, I'm looking at what Richard Dolan, who's one of the top UFO researchers, calls a breakaway civilization. And, uh, you know, basically it's sort of the same thing as the Illuminati and that kind of thing, but it's more when you start tracing the finances post-World War II, you come across this elite group that has been funding a hidden project, and a lot of it has to do with space. So, Space. Um, yeah, I know. And I, and I remember, you know, a few episodes ago or flybys or whatever, I was like, nobody cares about space. And then here I am yeah. writing a book about it. So I know. Um, but yeah, the tentative title right now is The Cosmic Endgame well, uh, Secret Civilizations, Space Weapons, and the Battle of Armageddon. So, whoa. Super intense. Sounds cool, dude. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Very awesome. I'm sure everybody is super excited about that because I am. Yeah, and I and I gave myself a deadline for this book, so uh-huh. uh, hopefully by October it's going to be done. Cool. Well, maybe when it's finished, I can get you on my internet radio show and interview about it. Oh yeah, what show is that? Generic Radio. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Okay. Sounds good. You're actually kind of inspiring me. I was thinking about maybe doing, I want to say like graphic novel, like internet graphic novel type thing. But then I'm like, you know what? I don't know if I have that many hours. I'll just let God do that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I'll say, I'll say, Hey, I I need a book cover. And then it'll take like six months for you to get on that. At least. Okay, so there you have it, everybody. Our very own Mr. Gans working on a piece of literature, so get ready for that. I wanted to send a personal thank you to everybody who is checking out our iTunes and leaving reviews and leaving ratings and things like that. For those of you who have not yet done that, you are such a disappointment to me. Um, <laughs> Just kidding. But if you have the time, which you're listening to this show, so obviously you have tons of free time, um, you should go to iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you listen to us and leave a rating or a review or a thumbs up or some stars or things like that. And um, if you do that, you will be earning my love. (laughs) That is definitely (laughs) worth it. I know. I'm really just trying to work on my terrible parenting skills here. So, <laughs> um, so there you go. Please go do that. Also, if you're interested, first of all, I would like to thank with all of my heart those of you who have been continuing to support Canary Cry Radio from our support tab on our brand new website. Yeah, we should um, mention that our website is redesigned. I literally just mentioned that, but we can mention it some more. But first... <laughs> Thank you, everybody, for supporting the show. We are so, so grateful in these harsh times. Gans and I are continuing to not sell out and do ads and sell ad space or things like that. We'll see how long that lasts. But if you would like that to continue and you are a fan of the show 
and you might have a couple extra bucks in your pocket, please consider going to canarycryradio.com, clicking on the support tab. There you can sign up for a sustaining monthly gift for several different amounts of money that are on there. Or, you know, if commitment scares you, you can give a one-time gift in any amount, and that would just be so great. And I would love you even more than I already do. That's hard. That's difficult to do. I know. And while you're on the news, uh, well, while you're doing that, you'll notice that we have updated our website. Many of you have emailed and complained, and Gons has emailed and complained, and I have <laughs> emailed and complained, and everybody's complaining. Our old website was having lots of trouble, so we just went ahead and changed it all up. So go check it out. It's kind of cool. I like it. Do you like it, Gons? I do. It's uh, it's different. It's got nice, large buttons for yeah, people to press. Yeah, big old buttons. Huge buttons. So those of you who like big old buttons, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There you go. We got it for you on canarycryradio.com. Okay, anything else, Gonzo? Nope. Uh, I there think was that's something. It. No, there was something and I totally I think slipped away. From, oh, I remember. Okay. I remember. Okay, so one more little hint. It's pertaining to the guests we have today, and I'm not going to dispel any more information other than to say that there is a conference that is being formulated at this time. And conference, conference, conference. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Conference, it will be conference, conference. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Keep going. Okay. Conference. Con- uh, really Just... hard to do it when you're okay, ta- doing continue. that thing there. I appreciate it though. But yeah, Just it will be. Riled up. Yes, it will be. Uh, Interrupting you even more now. Uh, so there's a conference. Tell me about that. <laughs> It'll be before the end of this year. And the main push of it is going to be live streaming. So, you know, all you guys can definitely check it out because it won't be like, Hey, you have to get on a plane and you know, all this archaic stuff that you have to do with travel. Mm -hmm. No, you can just, uh, you know, log in right from your home computer and, uh, be able to stream it. So that's going to be the main focus of it. And I just want to throw that out there. Nothing formulated a hundred percent yet, but it is in the works. Conference, conference, conference. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We should name this episode Basil is one man, one man cheering section. He is so obnoxious. Um, Okay, so that's a lot of stuff for everybody. Yeah, that's a lot of. Hope you're happy. A lot of uh, little nuggets of anticipation. Sure. Whatever. Okay, everybody. It's time. It's time for the episode to start. Who are we talking to today, Mr. Gons? Take it away. Our guest is a graduate of Grace College with a degree in sociology. He also has a master's in criminology from Indiana State and a degree in law from Indiana State's law school. He's currently the co-pastor at Fellowship Bible Chapel out in Ohio. He's been an elder for 15 years at a very large church, as well as on the board of Evangelical College and Seminary for 25 years. He's been practicing law with an extensive experience in representing individuals and business clients in complex commercial and business litigation matters involving restrictive covenant and theft of trade secrets, breach of contract claims, securities, finance, lender liability, 
professional liability and product liability. Uh, it's our honor to welcome John Holler. John, how you doing? Hi, Gans. Great to be with you today. Basil, this is uh, John Holler. How's it Hi, going, Basil. John? Nice to meet you. Good to talk to you. Well, did I get the bio right, or is that just, uh, you know, uh, fix anything yeah, that... No, I think you got it uh, pretty accurate. Okay, good. So tell us a little bit about your background and how you got interested in Bible prophecy and, uh, you know, just leading up to today. Where, what were your steps getting here? Well, I grew up in a pastor's home. Uh, my father was a pastor um, starting, he graduated from seminary in 1951. I was born a few years later. About six weeks after we, I was born, we moved from north central to northeastern Ohio between Canton and Akron. My father had grown up in a Grace Brethren Church in Dayton, Ohio, and one of the things that uh, he had a great love for was the teaching of Bible prophecy. Uh, as he was growing up in that church in Dayton, uh, he was taught by his pastor that someday the nation of Israel would be reconstituted under Jewish uh, control. And that came true while uh, he was entering seminary in 1948. Uh, so as I was growing up, I remember we had uh, any number of, uh, at that time, fairly well-known itinerant Bible and Bible prophecy teachers would come through. They would very often, uh, since we lived in the church parsonage, they would stay at our house or certainly would come over to the house for dinner. So I remember many discussions with some fairly well-known people around the dinner table uh, when I was, you know, six, seven, eight, nine, ten years old, where they would discuss these issues related to Bible prophecy. So it was sort of ingrained and taught to me from a pretty young age. Um, I always followed it. Uh, the pastors that I've had over the years have always faithfully, uh, uh, or that I had for many years, faithfully taught on on prophetic issues. And so I just kind of picked up on it. And when I, I started teaching it, uh, well, one of the things that sort of was, a, I think, a game changer in my own personal life, I was, uh, became a lawyer in 1980. And by the mid-90s, I was you know, pretty busy. I was working a lot of hours. I was traveling quite a bit. But in 1995, uh, coinciding with uh, my wife's and I's uh, 20th wedding anniversary, we went on a trip to Israel. And it was during that trip that a lot of these things that I had been taught about Bible prophecy and that sort of thing uh, sort of came into focus for me. Uh, after the trip, uh, one of the people on the trip gave me a tape of a guy named Chuck Missler uh, teaching on Ezekiel 38 and 39. So that sort of led then to uh, within a very short period of time, I started teaching at the church. I became an elder. Um, I actually had a, a radio program on a uh, Ohio radio station back in 1999 for about six months, uh, and I, you know, interviewed people like Dave Hunt and Chuck Missler. Uh, started attending conferences. Uh, became very good friends with a lot of these uh, people that teach at these Bible prophecy conferences. Uh, started spending time with them. Started studying. Kept teaching it. So now I teach. Uh, pretty regularly on Bible prophecy issues at our church, uh, Fellowship Bible Chapel. We're just a little church. We started just a little over a year ago. We're located in Lewis Center, Ohio. Uh, we have a website, fbchapel.com, FB, like Fellowship Bible, fbchapel.com. 
We also have a YouTube channel. If you just go to YouTube and the search bar and type in FB Chapel, all in one word, and hit enter, you should come up to our YouTube channel, FB Chapel. And uh, we post our the prophecy updates and then the teaching of my uh, fellow teachers at Fellowship Bible Chapel, the sermons. We put the audio and our PowerPoint presentations up uh, for people to watch. Uh, we cool. also we also sponsor uh, have uh, the committee that has kind of migrated to our new church that we started a year ago. Uh, we've done several Bible conferences under the Columbus Bible Prophecy Conference name. We have a Facebook page where we do post some things on a semi-regular basis. That's Columbus Bible Prophecy Conference on Facebook. Um, so I just have sort of followed, I think the Lord is leading in my life uh, as to teaching about it. I'm I have a very avid interest in current affairs and how they relate to things in the Bible. And I think we're really at the stage where we're seeing the, the Bible prophecies or the state, at least certainly the stage setting for things that will occur in very rapid succession as we get closer to the Lord's return. I certainly, I see all those things coming together. Sure. Yeah. Well, definitely, I think, you know, wars and rumors of wars and things like that have been going on for a while, and it's it's all kind of culminating. We're definitely in the birth pangs, at the very least. Um, yeah, Arnold Fruchtenbaum, uh, who's a, an excellent, excellent Bible teacher, he's a, uh, I think, a pre-trib, pre-millennial guy, uh, has written a great book called Footsteps of the Messiah uh, that I have a copy of. I think it's one book that everybody should read, and Arnold, in his book... Uh, and he teaches a lot from a Jewish perspective, given his background. And he um, he believes that the birth pang started with the beginning of World War One. And I think looking at what's unfolded over the last hundred years, in fact, the the shot that kind of set off World War One was fired in Sarajevo uh, by a Bosnian uh, Serb back in uh, one hundred years ago on June thirtieth. Uh, he assassinated Archduke uh, Ferdinand and his wife, uh, who were riding in an open car there, and that eventually, in very short order, led to uh, World War One. The United States, of course, entered a few years later, but it was the first great world war. And so, Fruchtenbaum's belief that the birth, at least the birth pangs, started in earnest back in 1914 is uh, pretty hard to refute. It's certainly, as you look around the world right now, it's hard to find very many places that are not having open, active conflict. And in light of that, Gons, it is incredible to me that two weeks ago, the current occupant of the White House stood there, and I have the, the video clip of it, and said that you know this this is the best time to be alive because the world's now more tranquil than it's ever been. Uh, this is a man who is either a massive deceiver or massively confused about what's going on. And his press secretary got up and said it just a couple days ago, said the exact same thing, that there's, you know, his, the Obama administration has really lessened the conflicts around the world. And I'm like, it's not in the world that I live in. So maybe there's an alternative universe someplace that they're uh, existing in. But everything 
everything seems to be in play right now. When when I look at the various lines of Bible prophecy, whether that be uh, economic things, because the Bible's very clear about economic problems. The Bible's very clear about geopolitical problems. The Bible's very clear about things going on in the Middle East. The Bible's very clear about things going on uh, from a cultural and societal norm standpoint. Every single one of those lines of Bible prophecy are in play right now. I, and I don't think uh, talking to you know, my friends who are, I guess, professional Bible prophecy experts, every one of them says they, it is so, everything is happening so rapidly and so much is happening that it's almost impossible to keep up. And I, I agree with them. It's just everything uh, that the Bible talks about in the end times is in play. So obviously it's easy to say that the acceleration of these biblical events is coming closer to sort of an apex or a climax of, you know, what we're all expecting the the biblical prophecies lead to. But what do you think could be the reason for this sort of acceleration? I mean, is it simply just that, or do you think that it could mean something else? Well, I think that it, it indicates that we're getting closer to the end. I think it indicates that the Lord's return is closer. And let me give you an example. Of, well, let me give you a couple examples. Uh, an example that I've used uh, when I've taught about this acceleration of Bible prophecy uh, being more more things happening in closer succession. I think it actually has a, a biblical basis. I think that the real the best interpretation of Jesus' words when he says, behold, I come quickly, I think the, one of the best ways to interpret that is that when, when, when it gets close to my coming, things are going to happen really fast. Things are going to happen in rapid succession. And if you actually look at um, one of the things that I've learned over the years is that prophecy is very often patterned. Uh, from a Hebraic uh, Jewish mindset, prophecy is patterned. For example, Jesus gives us some examples of that. It's exactly how Jesus taught. Jesus taught that uh, in uh, Luke 17, he teaches that uh, before his coming, it will be just as it was in the days of Noah, and it will be just as it was in the days of Lot. So if you want to understand what it will be like when the final prophetic scenario begins to unfold, go back and look at what happened at the time of Noah, and look at what happened at the time of Lot. And so if you go to 2 Peter chapter 2, you actually get a very good picture of what it was like for Lot in the days leading up to the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And what it was like for Lot was that he was, uh, I think 2 Peter 2 says that he was oppressed by the conduct of the licentious and uh, perverted sexual behavior going on around him. He, he felt oppressed. And God rescued him from that uh, just before the destruction. Um, uh, just before, I guess you would say, God's wrath was poured out on Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, so that's one thing that you learn. But if you also look at just what happened at the time of uh, Jesus' first coming, there's a a man that I've become good friends with over the years named Jacob Prash. And Jacob is, uh, often says, if you want to know what's going to happen at the time of Jesus' second coming, look at what happened at the time of his first coming. 
If you want to want to understand what the judgments upon the nations of the world will be like, look at what happened when the the judgment fell on the nations of uh, on Judah and the northern kingdom of Israel at the time of the prophets in the Old Testament. Those will give you patterns for what it will be like. And and he's also big on typology of the Antichrist. You know, you want to understand the Antichrist, look at Antiochus Epiphanes IV. If you want to understand the Antichrist, look at Herod. They're all types of the Antichrist. So these patterns are very important. And that's a long way of getting back to the point about the acceleration of Bible prophecy. When Jesus came the first time, there were... Uh, many, many prophecies in the Old Testament. Sometimes things that were fairly obscure. I mean, sometimes we look at things in the New Testament, at least I have, and it says, Behold, a young woman shall conceive. And this is that which was spoken of by the prophet. But when you go and look at the text back in Isaiah that talks about a young woman conceiving, it's kind of hard to get, why is this a messianic prophecy? You know, you have to really unpack it. But one of the things we learned is that there were all these prophecies about the first coming of the Messiah and what he would do, what his ministry would be, and his death, burial, and resurrection. They, they were there throughout the Old Testament. Uh, when the Old Testament canon closed about 400 years before uh, Jesus was born, there were easily dozens of prophecies. Some of those prophecies, they started to be fulfilled they, there was nothing happened, and then they were fulfilled with the appearance of the angel to uh, uh, Zechariah, and and then the birth of John the Baptist, and then the birth of Jesus, and the appearance of the angel to Mary, and those things were fulfilling a Bible prophecy. And if you, if I, I think if you added them up, what you would find is that around the time of the birth of Jesus, there were a few prophecies fulfilled. And then during Jesus' earthly ministry, more prophecies were fulfilled, but about right around 60% of the prophecies related to the Messiah's first coming were fulfilled in the last week. And so what that shows is that there was this exponential, exponential fulfillment of Bible prophecy. As it got closer to a very important event, everything started to unfold very, very quickly. Mm-hmm. So if you look at the pattern, what happened at his first coming will be what happens at his second coming. I think it's pretty clear that as we get closer to the end, things are going to unfold very rapidly. And I think right now what we see, I've, I've tried to depict this graphically in my prophecy updates, and I have sort of a lines, sort of a lines leading to a, a black hole, and I just have you know the different you know, some graphic pictures of the different events that are unfolding. Right. And I think as the, they all sort of intersect at a point at the second coming of Christ and the establishment of his millennial kingdom. And I think that as these things get closer to that point, there's, it's almost like a vortex. There's a, there's a real turbulence that takes place. And I really think we're living at the time where these things are converging and we're seeing that sort of vortex effect, if you want to call it that. Right, And that's why, you know, there's a lot of people, I mean, I hear this almost every day, people contact me by email, on Facebook, uh, in conversations, it's like, what is going on? This, yeah. The world's coming to an end. And these are people that are not, uh, they're not Christians or anything like that. I had someone walk in my office probably four or five years ago now and sit down and said, is this the end of the world? Right. 
And I'm like, are you sure you really want to ask me that question? And uh, <laughs> because I think I think we're in the in the certainly in the birth pangs are getting closer together. That's right. like the best way. And they get when they get closer together, they become uh, they become stronger and they become closer and closer and closer together. Totally. Um, so, John, those of us who don't receive your prophecy updates, what is happening recently? in the ways of prophecy that we should be looking out for? What are some of the most recent, blatant, biblical fulfillments of prophecy going on well, in the world today? Let's, uh, let's start with maybe some that aren't quite as apparent to people, and then uh, maybe we can kind of group them in two or th- three categories. First okay. of all, let's look at economic. Um, I do represent financial institutions. I, my personal opinion and observation, uh, not necessarily related to any of my clients, but just what's going on is that the world is in an extremely fragile state financially. And there are many people, some sinister powers and that type of thing, that are willing to collapse everything for their own benefit. Um, exactly who these people are sometimes is very shadowy and hard to understand. But, uh, and then there's all kinds of other pressures. For example, you, you cannot pick up the wall street journal, uh, which I read every day and investors business daily and not look through that and see the currency wars and, uh, problems with the gold supply and all these other things that are kind of playing out as nations try to jockey for position in a global economic collapse. Now, exactly what that looks like, I have no idea. People often ask me, what do we do? What do we do? And I'm like, you know, I don't know if there's any way to absolutely protect yourself from it. Certainly, I mean, global economic collapse has happened before. People have survived, but it's been tough. And the best thing I can say is have some cash and prepare. You know, have some cash stashed away in a safe place away from where you live that you can get access to it. Have an exit plan in case there is some chaos that develops in society. Um, so, and and look at all the other pressures that are going on. I mean, uh, you guys live in California. Uh, I was just looking at the drought map today. I mean, you guys are, uh, in terms of water issues you guys are falling apart out there in california i mean the central valley is pretty much bone dry right uh extreme severe long-term drought now in california which affects us here in ohio because we get 50 percent 50 percent of the nation's vegetables maybe 60 percent come out of the central valley of california yeah well if you guys aren't growing at anything then we're going to pay for it at the uh the loss of supply and demand still works, so we're going to pay more for it. So that's that's number one is this global economic problem. The the debt driven major governments of the world, the the debt structure is so far out of whack that there is I don't know of a single credible economist. And when I say credible economist, I would immediately exclude people like Paul Krugman, um, who is doesn't have a clue as to what the reality of everything is. But every, I think, good, credible economist says something's going to happen. Something has to happen because it's worse now than it was back in 2008. 
Right. And I know from the 2008, you know, because of the nature of my work with some bankruptcies, foreclosures, commercial workouts, and that type of thing, I, I was incredibly busy uh, work-wise for several years. Now, that work is pretty much uh, it's slowed down greatly. It's slowed down greatly. And I think that's in part because the banks are really, really nervous about what's going to happen. And they're kind of retreating into protection mode. So that's number one. That's the economic thing. The other thing is the cultural thing. And I think this is where my reference to the days of Lot is appropriate. I mean, look at what just has happened from a biblical uh, structure of marriage, one man, one woman for life. And what has happened culturally? You guys back in, uh, when was it, 2000? eight or nine uh, enacted probably 2008 enacted proposition eight that protected traditional marriage uh i remember i was with a pastor four years ago um almost exactly four years ago when the decision came down from san francisco i was having i had breakfast with him the next morning and he had been a big open active supporter of proposition eight and then mm-hmm. the decision came down from the uh, San Francisco judge striking down Proposition 8 as unconstitutional. And look at what's happened in the four years since then where uh, I forget what the role they're on is. You know, there's probably 25 major court decisions, all of which have gone against traditional marriage. So we see this breakdown in the cultural mores and structure of society. We see this stuff just this in the last month on the, our southern border. I mean, do we even have a border anymore? And this is going to cause, and and it's hard for me to look at it and say that this is not being planned by somebody, um, that that people are actively planning sort of a, a government, societal, structural collapse so they can do what they want. Um, I've, I've been reluctant to be labeled a conspiracy theorist, but look around. As we all are. Um, yeah. <laughs> I mean, just look around at what's going on. And, you know, one of the things that the Bible talks about is that there will be a man who will rise to uh, world leadership who will be known as the man of lawlessness. And look at, I mean, just look at what's happening. And I'm not making any predictions or anything like that about certain people, but look at what's happening in our own government with lawlessness. And people doing what they want, regardless of what the laws are. Yeah. Uh, this is characteristic of the end times, and so that's that's another one. So we have the so we have the governmental, uh, we have the economic, we have the uh, the cultural, and we have the uh, governmental. And you see this push for the nations of the world to unite. Yeah. And at the that, same time that they're doing that, there's also this anti-Israel sentiment among them. Absolutely, and we'll definitely get into that. Now, the the cultural stuff I can definitely see. Where is the economic stuff actually prophesied in the Bible? What is the what is the context for that? Well, when you look at the um, the seals that are un, that are unbroken, and there's a lot of I think controversy among people in the Bible prophecy community as to uh, when the seals the uh, seals of the scroll and revelation are, are, uh, are broken. 
and these judgments are poured out. Uh, some people say that it started a while ago. Some people said it started a long while ago. Some people say it hasn't started yet. It won't happen until the rapture of the church. But we do know that the uh, there is prophesied, you know, economic distress, um, a day's wages uh, to buy a measure of grain uh, for bread. That that indicates economic distress. There's famine. People, um, you know, a very large portion of the world's population dies because of famine and war uh, that happen at some point in the prophetic scenario. So I think that's where you come from, and we know that at some point there will be a mark that people will have to take by which they will buy or sell. They'll be required to do that. Right. And the Bible has some very stark warnings about that, that if you take that mark, you can't be saved. Now, um, so we know that there's technology in place that could make that happen. And in fact, I've said for years, as I've taught about this, that if it is a chip, you know, that's in your hand or forehead or something like that, when it happens, it'll be very attractive because it will be a good idea. I mean, we live in a world where your identity can be stolen. We live in a world where, I mean, I think of this every time I go to the store and I pull out this, you know, it's as thick as a, a small dictionary now called my wallet filled with all these loyalty cards and that type of thing. And I'm thinking like, man, it'd be nice if they just had a barcode on my hand that they could scan right. and get all my information so I didn't have to carry all this junk in my, I mean, I can't even get it in my, my pocket sometimes. So um, I think that, I think there are those things that we know at some point will happen. And we know that there'll be a stage setting prior to that time. Absolutely. Okay, so there's a lot of stuff going on with Israel, and there's a lot of debate about the whole thing. And uh, to be quite honest, even um, in my circles, both Christian and secular, there's a lot of talk about the Israel debate. And you know, it's uh, a lot of Christians are being swayed against, you know, sort of the defense of Israel and things like that. How do you see that playing into your picture of the yeah. Bible prophecy of the sure. Indians? Well, we know that um, I don't think there's any question, and, and I, I, I think we know that Jesus will come back and set up a kingdom. Uh, now, there, that's even a subject to debate in Christian circles. I don't know why. I don't see how somebody can read those scriptures and be anything other than premillennial. I'm sorry, I just have a problem with that. But um, the other thing that goes along with that is clear prophecies, Ezekiel 37, Ezekiel 35, other prophecies throughout the scriptures that talk about a reconstitution constituted nation of Israel in the land. And I think you can even go back to some of the prophecies and calculate them, and you come up... Um, it's probably it's hard to do this on a radio. I have a, a thing that I do on one of my presentations where, you know, you start with uh, one of the decrees to go back and rebuild Jerusalem or the temple, and you calculate from there, you multiply those days by seven, you come up to 1948. And if you start from another date, you come up to 1967. And we know that there were very significant, I think, fulfillment of Bible prophecy, not stage setting, but actual fulfillment of Bible prophecy that said that the nation of Israel would be reconstituted in the land. Uh, 
It happened in 1948. It was miraculous. They've been miraculously protected through a number of wars, attacked from Arab nations. And so I think that there is a sort of the centrality of the Jews back in the land of Israel in the prophetic scenario. And that, for the first time, that's in 1948 that started. I think that was the budding of the fig tree uh, that Jesus talked about in Matthew. And that's when he said, this is when you guys need to pay attention. Really, you should pay attention all the way through. But when that happens, you should pay attention. I see these people speaking against Israel. Uh, one of those examples would be just this morning, I heard a clip of Andrea Mitchell on NBC, who was talking about how terrible it is that uh, Israel has all this power and these Palestinian children are dying and it just looks really bad for Israel. Um, what do you expect people to do? I mean, what would you guys want your government to do if they were lobbing rockets from Tijuana into uh, Southern California, would you want the government to react and do something? Yes. And, and what would be considered disproportionate at that time? But the Bible says that in the end times, the nations will be gathered together against Israel and against Jerusalem. And you see that happening with extreme... It, it, it's, you can't pick up a newspaper around the world uh, it's unusual when you find a world leader like Stephen Harper up in Canada who will come out and actively speak in favor of the nation of Israel. Uh, certainly, our government has appears to have abandoned Israel. Right. That's what I think is going on there. I think the nations, you see them coalescing against Israel. Uh, you see a rise of, and the Jewish people. You see a rise of anti-Semitism sweeping across Europe with some of the uh, recent elections. And there were riots in Paris just last week. I mean, uh, you see a rise of a Russian government that has long been uh, anti-Semitic. And it's this is kind of probably something for, I don't know, this discussion or another one is, you know, this Putin guy in Russia is acting like he's the great protector of the Christian faith. And I've been doing some research on that. And his association with the Russian Orthodox Church is unmistakable. Whether he's doing it as a deceptive thing or he really believes it, I can't figure out. But he's using this as, a, as, a, as kind of a wedge. And the Russian Orthodox Church has long had a history of being extremely anti-Semitic. And in fact, I think some of the pogroms in Russia against the Jewish people were at least, if not more severe than the things that the, uh, the Nazis did back in Germany in World War II. Mm. Wow. Yeah. That's I mean, interesting. it's interesting because, uh, you know, I know you're, uh, you're acquainted with Bill Koenig. Mm-hmm. Very good friends. Yeah. I heard him, uh, on a radio show. I think it was true news a few days ago talking about how during his travels in airports, he would see free copies of the protocols of the elders of Zion, just like being passed out to people. And I'm thinking, yeah. I'm thinking really the people are still getting you know, indoctrinated into that kind of stuff. And, and, uh, you know, our listeners will know a couple episodes ago, you know, a pretty anti-Semitic bent, uh, worldview that, you know, wasn't necessarily even yeah. from a, an understanding of biblical prophecy or th- these people weren't Christian or maybe not versed in Bible prophecy, but they were, coming at it from a completely different angle. And they were saying, well, we have to deal with uh, the reality of the Jews and, you know, 
yeah, the whole thing. Trying to like justify it. Yeah. Like, like, well, this is a problem we have. We should probably <laughs> deal with it. Well, I think, you know, and, and everybody acts like, the, the thing is, I think that if you have a proper understanding of Bible prophecy and the way the Bible is going to unfold, uh, the prophetic scenario, you, you'll be a supporter of Israel. Now, I, I often joke with my friends, they're like, well, you know, you're just one of those crazy Christian Zionists that supports everything that Israel does. And my response to that is, no, I don't. I think they should have bombed Iran a long time ago. So I don't agree with everything that they do. <laughs> and, uh, but, uh, I, you know, sometimes it's very overt, like the protocols of the elders of Zion. I, I remember when I was a young lawyer, I used to go to New York quite a bit. And there were, um, on the streets of Manhattan back in those days, you, you encountered the uh, Hare Krishna people. Uh, so I'm trying to sell you flowers and collect money from you. Right. And then you would get to LaGuardia Airport, and there's usually two tables set up right there in the middle of LaGuardia Airport by the Lyndon LaRouche people. Uh, and his his conspiracy and uh, Jewish conspiracy theories and stuff that he was trying to peddle. So a lot of times I would stop just to talk to him for kind of sport um, to you know kind of get him upset and everything, you know, just for... <laughs> because they were crazy. I mean, the, the people were insane. So, um, but I, so it's, it's overt, it's overt in the Islamic world, especially the anti-Jewish sentiment. I mean, let's be honest. We have to say that that's exactly what's going on. But the thing that's even more troubling is the, what I would call sort of the uh, subtle, maybe even sometimes not so subtle anti-Semitism in the evangelical church. Let me give you a couple examples. Now, Please. I want to preface this with a qualification. Uh, it, this is very often done by people who we call evangelical, but I would say that we pretend that they're evangelical. Mm. Yeah. Because I, I think that we need to be honest about that. And I'll, I'll give you an example. Uh, Brian McLaren, I just heard a speech that he gave up in Oregon back in April for the, it was called uh, FOSNA, Friends of Sabeel North America. Sabeel is an organization that's pro-Palestinian, anti-Israel. Uh, and they think Israel's the problem. So he went and gave oh. a speech at this conference in Portland back in April. You can find it on YouTube uh, under FOSNA. Um, and it, interestingly enough, they had the son of a of a Israeli general spoke at this conference, and this guy got up at this conference and said that the person who had been most committed to peace between the Palestinians and Jew, Palestinian and Jewish people over the last twenty or thirty years was Yasser Arafat. I mean, I couldn't believe it when I saw this. This person is massively confused and massively deceived, but. Uh, I remember, so McLaren is someone we pretend to be an evangelical, you know, the emerging church, the this sort of postmodern uh, worldview that uh, has been layered on top of what they think is Christian theology, and it's really something very different. But in that speech, McLaren talked about how he had been raised in a pre-trib, pre-millennial church, and they had guys come through with their prophecy charts and everything, and Yuck, 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 everybody in the audience. And they actually believe that Israel's the fulfillment of Bible prophecy. But if you've listened to a lot of Brian McLaren's stuff, and I have, I my concern is if I went to him and said, I think you're anti-Semitic, he would deny it. 
But here's the practical effect of what he really believes. I heard an interview with him. This is probably at least eight years old now. He was being interviewed by somebody about his view of hell. And what was Jesus talking about when he talked about hell and Gehenna in Matthew in the New Testament? And Jesus talked more about anybody else. And, and Brian then sort of unveiled the fact that he wasn't premillennial. He was actually a preterist someone who believed that virtually all Bible prophecy was fulfilled with the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. And so that this reconstitution of the nation of Israel has no prophetic significance because Bible prophecy has already been fulfilled. We're just maybe waiting for Jesus to come back. Now, somebody like McLaren, by the way, believes that Jesus won't want to come back when we make the world good enough for him to come back, to which I say, that's nonsensical. I mean, if, if the church was designed to make the world perfect so Jesus could return, God really was a miserable failure because we've been around for 2,000 years and no place on the earth has the church been able to reconstitute something that you would consider to meet the things that the scripture talks about the kingdom of God. Right. I, you know, yeah. I think, it, it, you know, I'm talking about the literal earthly kingdom of God being set up. So, but in that speech, he said, well, you know, those, those things that Jesus talked about with regard to hell, that just related to the Jews, that all that destruction, that <laughs> wow. hell, that, and, and that's what he said. And Holy I'm thinking <laughs> the way it comes across to me, a supporter of Israel, modern Israel is, oh, so all the bad stuff all the, the hellfire and brimstone and gnashing of teeth, all that stuff, it's okay that it went for the Jews. But we in the church, we're a whole different class of people. And I personally think whether he would admit it or not, and this is kind of a, I think, maybe out there thing to say, because uh, I'm sure he's a nice guy. You know, and he's probably a nicer guy than I am. I'll, <laughs> I'll stipulate to that. But it does, when you really analyze it the right way and listen to what he says, it does sound, whether he intends it or not, does sound anti-Semitic. But then you layer on top of it this support for the Palestinian cause, um, and, and you see this rising among evangelical people, uh, Paul Wilkinson, uh, who I'd be speaking at uh, David Hawking's prophecy conference in two weeks uh, on the first and second of August over at Calvary Chapel, Chino Hills. Uh, Paul Wilkinson calls it uh, Christian Palestinianism. And I think that's a pretty accurate uh, description of it is that um, the Palestinians are you know, somehow these oppressed special people and when you listen to McLaren and these guys talk about it, they, they take the biblical language, but they turn it into this sort of um, filtered, I, I would call it even a Marxist language. of It's, it's a struggle against empire. So you, you, you side with the oppressed people, and obviously the Palestinian people are oppressed. So while they say that they're not anti-Semitic, the practical effect of it is that I think that they are. Right. And even the, uh, the mention of we need to, you know, make the earth a better place and stuff like that. There's a couple things. First, it sounds like a kingdom now theology of the dominionist movement. Absolutely. And, uh, and it also sounds, um, 
very close to what Alice Bailey and some of these occultists spoke about with you know their the, their whole worldview of the new world order and things like that. But uh, in touching on the whole eschatology thing in the church, Rick Warren came out a few weeks ago talking about you know don't don't worry about the uh, the whole eschatology thing. You know you guys are preoccupied with false things. Uh, Andy Stanley is another guy who's you know, hasn't been shy about talking about, you know, don't worry about eschatology. What what are your thoughts on that whole side of it? And it's, that's a very popular notion in the mainstream uh, evangelical church today. Yeah. I've actually bumped up against that personally (laughs) that uh, I think personally, it is a sign of the end times. Uh, actually, I spoke at a conference back in March, and that was one of the themes. I did sort of an update, you know, what's going on in the world. But the theme that I used was the passage in Second Peter 3, where Peter says that in the end times, scoffers will come saying, where is the promise of his coming? And my conclusion was that when I, for many, many years, I thought that that related to people outside the church to atheist unbelievers. Right. Yeah. I no longer believe that. Mm. I believe that that was directly related to people within the church who claim the name of Christ, who claim to be Christians, who will be scoffing in the end times about that. And you see that growing like a weed um, on, on steroids. Uh, you see that, that sentiment growing within what I'll call the evangelical church, what we what we would think of evangelical church. Yeah, Rick Warren started that with his, uh, that actually comes from, I think it's, I forget the page number in his Purpose Driven Life, where he kind of fractures uh, and misinterprets Acts 1, 8, uh, you know, or 1, 6, 7, and 8. Uh, that's not what Jesus said. Jesus just spent uh, two long discourses in, well, actually, in three of the Gospels, in, uh, in uh, Mark, Luke, and, and Matthew, talking when the disciples came to him and said, what's the sign of your coming? What, what, what about the end times? And he spent a long time, one of his longest discourses recorded in Scripture, talking about it. Another interesting thing that I've just sort of, I guess, kind of focused on recently is if you look at uh, in Acts, Paul talked about the fact, or it's recorded there, that he was with the people in Thessalonica for like three Sabbaths. Now you go over to First and Second Thessalonians, particularly Second Thessalonians, and people are asking, apparently there were questions about the end times. Now he had been there three weeks, three weeks. And they were asking questions about the end times, and Paul sort of rebuked them, saying, didn't you guys pay attention? I, I told you about this. Right, yeah. That's interesting. Paul had a lot of information to impart to people, but he talked about eschatology to these Thessalonian believers that he only spent a very short time with. So I think if Paul thinks Bible prophecy is important, then I think it ought to be important. Jesus talked about it. All of the New Testament writers, for the most part, talk about it. But I think that one of the signs of the end times is a growing disdain and open hostility to the teaching of Bible prophecy. And if I could build on one of the things you raised, Gons, about dominion theology and dominionism and kingdom now— 
I have seen many churches that have become very enamored with the writings of a guy named N.T. Wright. And those churches are, they've changed into something other than an evangelical church, in my opinion. Hmm. You know, Tom Wright did it. He's an Anglican bishop or was in uh, England, a prolific writer. He did a phenomenal job defending the resurrection. Right. I, I, that's what I was going to say. I've, I've heard his name as uh, used pretty heavily as a, a positive uh, persona for, you know, apologetics. No, I, in terms of the resurrection, but now I would say, uh, go find somebody else to read because uh, he believes that we're going to rebuild the kingdom. And this, this, and so the outflow of that, he's extremely popular, popular among the people that we would call the emergence or postmoderns uh, in the evangelical church, like the McLarens, Rob Bell, Doug Padgett, Tony Jones, those type of people. Um, he's very, very popular. And that he is the guy that sort of gives them a lot of evangelical muscle for their view. Another guy would be Jim Wallace at Sojourn, so Mark, an admitted Marxist. And they talk about social justice and helping people and feeding people and giving them water. I heard an African pastor recently who said this, look, folks, we're dying here in Africa. It's, it's terrible. The poverty is bone crushing. But don't send us water trucks. Don't send us wells. Don't send us water. Don't send us food. Send us people who will teach us the gospel because mm. we're dying and we need the gospel. And I think that's the proper perspective. But what you see now is so many churches are concerned about, uh, and, and I'm not saying don't have it, okay, but uh, soup kitchens, uh, food banks, that type of thing. But what never gets shared in that is the gospel. And that's what's going to change people's eternal destination. And that's really what the focus needs to be. The other stuff is okay. But what's happened with people like N.T. Wright and his, his view and the kingdom now people and the dominionists is we're going, to, we're going to make it all better. Everything's going to be great. And we're going to bring in the kingdom. And I just think that it's, it's, a, it's a fool's errand. Uh, and it's exactly what I would have expected people to believe because those people, sadly, unless they repent of that and change, when a great world leader comes that says he's going to make everything right and great, mm. they're going to be deceived. Yeah. And so I, I've been reading a lot. Um, I, I said this a couple months ago when I did one of my teachings that there is a division coming within the evangelical church over all of these issues on gay marriage, views of the kingdom, Bible prophecy, the gospel, what the church's focus should be. And I applaud it. I hope it comes because uh, the tares and the wheat are growing up right now, and it's time to get rid of the tares because these people have lost the focus on what the real gospel is and what the kingdom means and those type of things. That's another thing. I, I think that was one of the things I was going to lead into eventually was 
the uh, rise of apostasy and false teaching in the church. When Jesus gave his Olivet Discourse, particularly in Matthew, he started off, take heed that no one deceive you. He talked more about deception than any other topic that he talked about. He talked about earthquakes, wars, but four times more than that, he talked about false teaching. Don't be deceived. And he warned, and these were the people that had just spent three and a half years with him at his feet, learning directly from the Messiah. And he told them, be careful. When Paul was uh, had one a, a meeting with uh, the the church leaders from um, Ephesus uh, in Acts chapter twenty, he warned them: there will come people from among your own selves that are wolves that will destroy the flock. Be on the guard. People that had been taught directly by Paul. So, if the people taught directly by Jesus, the people taught directly by Paul, were capable of being deceived, and historically we know that they were, then we need to be really careful too and be on guard. I had a conversation, I'm going to guess it was probably six years ago. I was at a prophecy conference in Phoenix, and I had got invited to lunch with the speakers. So I went over to sit down at the table with Bill Caney, my friend, and uh, Tom McMahon from the Brian Call, and I don't think he would mind me saying this, sat down next to me. I introduced myself. He was actually from Columbus, uh, so we talked a little bit about that, and he, he knew my pastor at the time. And I, I asked him, I said, Tom, you know, this is right when a lot of people were really, really becoming aware of this emergent church movement. It had started quite a bit before that, but it was just really sort of getting on everybody's radar screen that was discerning. And he says, you know, John, 20 years ago, Dave Hunt and I wrote a book called The Seduction of Christianity. And we were sure when we wrote that back in the uh, 1980s that it couldn't get any worse before the Lord returned. He goes, in the last year, I've seen things that are so troubling to me that I'm, I didn't think I would still be here and see the stuff that I'm seeing. That was six years ago, and it, it hasn't improved since then. So... That's probably, if I had to rank them, that would be the number one indicator that we live near the end of time of the the Lord's return and the fulfillment of all the Bible prophecies and the establishment of Messiah's kingdom is the false teaching in the church. Yeah. Now, uh, as long as we're on the subject of the apostasy and false teaching, um, you were forced out of the Fellowship of Grace Brethren Churches for criticizing the embrace of mysticism. Um, yeah. Can you speak to that at all? Sure. Let me let me give you a little bit of history. Sure. Um, of course, I have a degree in sociology and criminology, and so I had a lot of training in psychology. And I wasn't. Uh, I'll I'll confess I wasn't completely aware of its underpinnings and that type of thing. So it took it took a lot of books, uh, writings by people like Dave Hunt and Tom McMahon um, to, to kind of get a grasp, a handle on really what's behind the whole psychology thing. But in the 1980s, the board of, uh, I was on the board, I was asked to come on the board of Grace College and Seminary. 
Uh, it's where I went to college. It's where my father went to seminary. It's where my brother and sister graduated from college. So it's a, our whole family has a long history with grace. And uh, as I was coming on the board, I became aware of uh, the fact that there, there was a, a professor of counseling in the seminary named Larry Crabb, who was teaching sort of a blend of Christianity, mysticism, and psychology. And it, was, it had become a big problem within the Fellowship of Grace Brethren Churches, so much so that the school decided to separate from Larry Crabb. Now, I think the history of that moment has been rewritten, but I was there when it happened, and Larry Crabb needed to go. Um, now, I want you to fast forward about, that, was, that would have been around 1988 when that happened. Um, in 2001, I spoke at the Grace Brethren National Conference on postmodernism, and what I saw is a coming bad effect in the evangelical church by people adopting postmodern behavior. And I had started to become aware of it in my own, my legal practice. I'm a trial lawyer. And so when I have to go and present cases in front of a jury, and I have to persuade the jury. So I noticed a shift. You know, I started practicing law in 1980. But by 2000, if I went to a trial lawyer for continuing legal education seminar, it was more not about how to effectively present the facts. It was about how to appeal to the emotions of people. So I started looking into what, what's driving this? Because to me, it was a very apparent change. And it was more about persuading people's emotions to vote for you, and the evidence was irrelevant. So um, I looked into it, started doing some research, and kind of hit on this postmodernism thing. So I spoke at Grace Brethren National Conference there in Anaheim in 2001, and I said, this is a bad thing. This is, this is uh, people are, are going to be driven by their emotions. They're not going to worry about the truth. Uh, truth is going to really take take a lot of hits in the years coming. And I wasn't trying to be prophetic. I was just being an observer of what was going on. And I got some pushback from some pastors. Oh, this will be a good thing, John. You don't really understand it. Well, we're now 13 years down the road from that. How's that? How has that worked out? <laughs> it's been a very, very bad thing for the church. It's really undermined the faith. And I know you guys are probably half my age or close to it. I'm 60. Things have changed. I mean, the the stuff that, um, well, I'll use the president as an example. The stuff I see the president saying to appeal to people's emotions when the facts are something completely contrary, it's, it's mind-blowing to somebody who grew up in the era that I did, where truth was truth, black was black, white was white. And now it's just this appeal to somebody's emotions and sway them that way. Well, folks, that's that's prophetic. That's what, that's what this great man of lawlessness will do. You know, it's interesting. This man will become a world leader. Now, he'll have plenty of opposition, but he'll become a great leader, the greatest ever. And, and people will follow after him, but the world will be falling apart around them, and they'll be following this guy. How, hmm. how severe must the deception be for that to happen? So back to my thing with uh, the college and seminary, uh, I became aware 
of some things being taught um, through my wife who had gone to a seminar by one of the professors uh, and that type of thing. And there was a, a, a thing that uh, had come into seminaries by that point in time. This would have been about um, five or six years ago uh, called Spiritual Formation. And I, I didn't really spend a lot of time when I was busy in my law practice and that type of thing. But then some people started raising some things, and so I approached the administration and said I was concerned about the spirit orientation of the spiritual formation program, and I was told not to worry about it, that we just do what they do at Talbot Seminary there at Biola and Dallas Seminary, uh, which are great, you know, supposedly great evangelical seminaries. So I, I went and started researching what they did at Talbot. <laughs> And what they did at Dallas, and I got really, really concerned, and so starting to look, look into it, and um, it, everything kind of came to a head about the fall of 2012 when I heard that uh, they wanted to bring this professor to do a teaching seminar at my church, and that kind of put me in kind of a, a strange position because I have an obligation as an elder of the church to protect the theological integrity of the church, and I have an obligation as a trustee of the seminary to protect the historical theological, at least I thought, the historical theological basis of the seminary. And I was concerned about that, and I was concerned about that uh, within the Grace Brethren Fellowship, I had been at conference planning meetings where they were talking about bringing in Rob Bell and Doug Padgett and Brian McLaren to speak at national conference, and I so the pastors, you know, the leaders of the fellowship was like, guys, who do, you, do you know who these guys are? I mean, I don't even think they're Christians. And you want to bring them in to speak at our national conference? I, it just, there was like a total disconnect. So it was just sort of a convergence, again, that word, of a lot of different things. But I was concerned about, uh, and so I, I got a hold of the spiritual formation class, the textbooks that were used, which were Dallas Willard and... Richard Foster and Larry Crabb, and I'm thinking, wait, Larry Crabb, we fired Larry Crabb, we terminated him because of his orientation, and now it's back in our seminary. So 25 years later, what was unacceptable in the late 80s was now actively promoted, and then they wanted to, you know, some of the pastors wanted to bring her to, to do a seminar at our church. So I I researched it. Uh, if you go to Eric Barger's website, ericbarger.com, I sort of summarized my concerns in a paper that he has up there. I think if you look on his website, you can find the paper that I did. It's maybe six or eight pages on spiritual formation, just sort of a little bit of primer of where, where it's coming from. But it's based on psychology and mysticism. You, you see the same names coming up, Richard Foster, uh, Thomas Merton, Richard Keating, uh, people that were associated with Willow Creek, like uh, Mindy Caligulari, uh, Ruth Haley Barton, uh, and they're all they're all into this rank mysticism. They go to these retreats, and it's I, I cannot find anything in Scripture that supports it. But it's very experience based. And it's based on people's emotions. They want to have this experience with God. It's very, very much a part outgrowth of what I think is the postmodern emergent church orientation and evangelicalism. And it's it's everywhere. I mean, it's just 
you're hard pressed not to find it seeping in someplace, usually through women's ministries and also through these spiritual formation programs in college, in, in college and seminaries. And it's just it's just not biblical. It wasn't biblical 25 years ago. It's not biblical now. So I I raised the issue. I wrote uh, the letter was probably 150 pages to the administration at the college and seminary. And then the next day, my wife came home and said, "Hey, they're going to bring her to to a seminar here." So I sent it to all the elders in the church. Um, over the next, you know, the, the administration. Uh, at the college and seminary, rejected my concerns. The um, the pastors never really talked about it. There were a few elders. We started to have talks about it, but then uh, they they essentially they they eventually a year ago April they held a what I guess you would call a trial to have have me removed as an elder. And the ostensible basis was that I had become divisive, which the divisive term, they started off the meeting saying that I never taught anything false. And I taught a fairly large adult Bible fellowship in the church. And um, so I said, well, I can't be divisive because the divisive being in Scripture, if you look at Romans 16, the usage of that term in, the, in, in Titus uh, chapter 3, the factious man is that the word is, the Greek word is the Greek word for heretic. And you just said, I don't teach anything false, so I can't be divisive, as you divide, divis define divisiveness. But it eventually, it, it was not, I probably could have taken it to the large congregation, but uh, my wife and I talked, and I decided to resign. And they said, well, you can't talk to your class anymore here. And uh, they had already asked me to leave the church in a letter. So we just resigned and left and started a church. Um, but this is happening. To, this has happened to many, many people. I'm not unique, right? In this regard, I, I hear it happening all the time. I have. I I told them my goal is not to split a church or anything like that. My goal is I don't even care if this professor continues to teach. <laughs> okay, I just want people to repent and get back to teaching the Word of God and get away from this experience-related uh, um, orientation and get back to what the truth of the Word of God says and the person of Jesus Christ. That's what I want. Right. I don't want people to get fired. I don't want churches to split or anything like that. But I think, circling back to what I started to say a little while ago, I really think that these issues, the gay marriage issue, is huge right now in the evangelical church. Just look at the blogs that people are writing. And this book, The God and the Gay Christian, that this Matthew Vines uh, kid, well, to me he's a kid, uh, wrote, comes out of, I think he's out of Kansas City or someplace. And this stuff is not biblical. It's twisting the scriptures. It's all about feel good. And so this is, this is an, I think this is an issue that's going to divide churches. And people are going to pretty much have to say, that, you know, we can't, we can no longer fellowship with people who accept these things. And if I can add just a sort of a corollary onto that, I think it's coming in the business world as well, huh. uh, where people are going to be asked to make a stand. I, I know of a local pastor 
well, I don't know if we call him a pastor. He teaches at a church. He works for a large, well, it was just in the news, J.P. Morgan Chase. And I know that I've heard people within the Chase organization that they, they have a huge office that's probably as big as the Pentagon here in Columbus, their operations center. A lot of people work for them around here, and people have expressed concerns as the way it's going with respect to the gay agenda. That it's not that you have to tolerate it, that you're going to have to actively affirm it. Now, they haven't got to that point yet, but I know people have said, I, you know, at some point, I think I'm going to have to resign from my job. Because in good conscience as a Christian, I won't be able to go there and sign the document that they want me to sign. Well, just week before last, J.P. Morgan Chase, it was reported and confirmed on a number of uh, websites, that J.P. Morgan Chase had done a, a uh, company census. And they asked five questions. You had to sign in, you know, put your name and your employee number on it. And the five questions are, are you a person with disabilities? Number one. Number two, uh, is your spouse a person with disabilities? Do you have family? Number three, do you have family members with disabilities? Number three, do you identify as LGBT? And number five was, are you an ally of LGBT, even if you don't identify as LGBT? Now, where do you think that's going? That was, that's one of the largest banks in the world that's doing that. And so I really think that there's a, a time coming, if Jesus was correct, that the pattern would be the days of Lot, that people are going to be put in positions. And um, I went to a seminar recently where a consultant, a diversity consultant, said big corporations that want to hire you as a lawyer are going to look to your firm's commitment to LGBT, to diversity. But the sole thing, the sole thing that they're going to look at in making that determination is how many out LGBT lawyers you have. Because if they're not out, then it's going to be assumed that you're, you have a hostile environment and you're not committed to diversity and also your commitment to their agenda. And if, you, if you're not committed to their agenda, you're not going to get hired by these big corporations as a lawyer. So I, I personally think, and I've been saying this for some time now, Christians are going to really be faced with a pretty stark choice in the not-too-distant future. You see, they, they have no compulsion or compunction against taking down a bakery or a photographer uh, in New Mexico or anybody else that doesn't go along with their agenda. And I just, I think it's coming. And I think it's prophetic, though, because Jesus said, as it was in the days of Lot, and Second Peter says, Lot, go read Second Peter too. Lot was oppressed. I think, I think it, as that, you know, the bad, I guess the more bad news there is, the more hope we have that things are getting closer to an end. It's kind of a paradox that we live right. in. Yeah. Uh, it's, 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 it's tough. I mean, it, it's tough from a human standpoint to look at everything sort of falling apart around you and saying, wow, boy, I'm really hopeful now. And, uh, but I think that's what, uh, you know, we're not supposed to, as you said earlier, not to have the spirit of fear, but we're supposed to look up, you know, because our redemption draws nigh. So we're supposed to be filled with hope as everything is falling apart. But it's tough. I, I'll admit it's tough. I look at 
I follow things, and I'll have to tell you sometimes, it's like, man, how bad is this going to get before the end? And the answer is, it's probably going to get worse. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, there's a, there's one topic that we have to uh, tackle briefly uh, before we let you go, just because, sure. you know, we're Canary Cry Radio. And uh, that's the topic of the Nephilim. And so we <laughs> wanted to ask you what your conclusions are based on Genesis 6 and, um, you know, who the sons of God are, who the Nephilim are, and uh, if it has any, I guess, relation or weight to modern times. Well, I do think that, you know, I, I, I would say that my views on the topic are kind of in a state of flux because I've been doing a lot of reading, mainly with, uh, you know, from some of the guys, some things I've heard you say and some of the people that you've had on the program and everything that I'm sort of rethinking this issue. But I have long been committed to the notion that uh, there was uh, something weird going on in Genesis chapter 6. Right. That it was a demonic corruption of the human race. I think that uh, it's it's interesting if you look at the pattern of Scripture that every time God announced something more about how his plan was going to unfold, Satan focused his attack. So uh, he said it would come from the seed of the woman, the, the redemption of mankind, the, the earliest prophecy in Genesis chapter 3. So he attacked the seed of the woman. He attacked the human race. Uh, and then, you know, we know later that he said, well, it's going to be the Jewish people. So he attacked the Jewish people. And and then, you know, the, there were this, this kind of strange stuff going on in the land of Canaan when the Jewish people came in to possess it and that type of thing. So Satan is, uh, you know, I don't think he's, I think he's clever. I think he's deceptive, but, you know, he he's a reactionary type person, uh, individual being and he's going to react to what god's plan is so in the end times god says it's going to be focused around the nation of israel so he's going to attack israel i mean i think we see that happening so i think that there was something going on there in genesis chapter 6 a corruption of the of the human race um i know there are people that don't think that's a very biblical view but I was always taught that, that there was something going on. I mean, it said Noah was perfect in his generations. I think his family had been protected from the corruption. And it got to the point where I think God's going to have to take out humanity. Now, I know there are people that disagree, but that's just sort of the premise that I go from. So there's this corruption of humanity. And in that regard, um, I have been studying and reading uh, for a number of years now, about this transhumanism thing. Um, I've never been big on comic books uh, and that type of thing, but uh-huh. I uh, last summer I had to go up to Cleveland uh, for some court hearings, and I had sprained my ankle, so I had to park like five blocks away from the courthouse, and I hobbled over there. It was in the rain. I get to the courthouse. I'm soaked. And the reason why I couldn't park close to the courthouse was because all the streets in Cleveland were shut off because they were filming the Captain America Winter Soldier movie. So I did my thing in the courthouse, and I came out, and I watched some of the scenes being filmed on the street there. You know, and a couple times I did, you know, you can't stand there. You got to go over here and because we don't want you in the shot. I guess they didn't 
they thought if you saw me, they would think maybe the Nephilim had returned already. But, uh, <laughs> the um, uh, so we were out in California in May, and um, we don't go to very, movies very often. So I um, I said, when we go see this Captain America movie, because I saw it being filmed, they just kind of like you know pick out the street scenes and see if I can figure out where that scene came from in uh-huh. downtown Cleveland. So we went, and I have to tell you guys, um, I had seen the um, Avengers movie a couple years ago um, that kind of had, you know, Captain America, Iron Man, Black Widow, and Thor, and right. all these people in it. And it, it was pretty amazing. We saw it in 3D and all that, and we saw this thing out. It was out at Ontario mills near my in-laws and every movie theme of all the trailers was a cult or transhumanism or both. Yeah. And I was, I, I walk, I came out of the movie theater and I have to tell you, I felt like an alien and I, I really, I turned to my wife and I said, uh, it was a good movie. But I said, I don't think these people walking around here, you know, it was in, we'd gone to a matinee because we're cheapskates and, and you get the senior discount then too. So, um, but all these people were coming out to the mall for the evening showings and dinner and all this stuff. And it was like, I really felt disconnected <laughs> from world in a way because my orientation is so different from what's happening in the world and culture i felt like an, i really felt like an alien i said to my wife i said these people have no clue what's coming and so this so i i do see this connection with i'm not sure i understand everything that happened in genesis chapter six or exactly what was going on but I am extremely concerned about the development of this transhumanism thing that I see, this improving people, the altering of the DNA or whatever it is they're going to do. I think it's not good. Uh, I don't, I, 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 you know, there was that Time magazine cover. I use it on the front page of my, a lot of my presentations, my prophecy updates. Uh, the Time Magazine cover two years ago, 2045, the year man becomes immortal. And then last year, right. a Time cover saying, can Google solve death? And I'm like, so when I saw that 2045 cover, I, I'd had a friend who had worked with in the as a medical ethicist in a transhumanism nanotechnology research institution in Europe. As a Christian, he, I, how he got this job is miraculous. It's a long story. And you probably should interview him sometime for your show because I think he has a lot to, to offer. But so I've been aware of it through my association with him and, and the things that he's taught me that he talked about and the things he knows. And I'm just like, um, it, it sort of has kind of fleshed out what I think some of the things that are going to be going on in the end times. And, and the world is set up for it. It's in comic books, it's in culture, it's in television. People have been, the devil has been very clever. I mean, uh, a local pastor out there in California once told me, yeah, the devil has a media group and he lives locally. 
<laughs> and uh, I think that was exactly right. So uh, I'm not sure if I answered your question there, but I... Um, well, you uh, you reaffirmed probably a lot of things that our listeners are pretty familiar with, and um, we've we've been looking at transhumanism since the beginning of the the show, uh, and so you know, and we've often quoted scriptures that seem to indicate that sort of bent. You know, you got Matthew twenty four twenty two where it talks about if those days aren't cut short, no human flesh would survive. You know, it's like that's right. Well, what do you well, mean? And I, yeah, I think that. I think it's a much, I think it's a much more serious problem than most in the church are willing to discuss at this point. I think it's it's kind of lonely, cutting edge stuff if you're talking about it, and I, I applaud that. Exactly how it unfolds is I don't know, but I'm just saying. I told somebody the other day. I said, "Is if this is the end times, things are going to get really weird." There, it's it, it's not going to seem real to people that are truly part of the remnant, right? Faithful, and um, I just think there's massive deception coming. And and I looked at what's in the movies. That I mean, they're phenomenal what they can do with technology, but they've set up the world for what I think are some pretty sinister things. Yeah, and definitely, uh, you know, in relationship to, and this is an angle that. We haven't tackled too much on the show, but uh, I think I wrote a blog post on it. But, you know, one of the things that transhumanism is trying to push is the end of gender. You know, so this whole, you know, you talked about the whole, you know, gay marriage thing and the LGBT and all this stuff. <laughs> when I started looking at some of those aspects of the end of gender and some of the, th- of the things that the transhumanists are saying are, are coming the LGBT thing just doesn't even seem like an issue. It's like, hey, this, if you look further down the tunnel, we're talking about the end of male or female. I mean, <laughs> I well, mean th- this is just ridiculous, you know? I, saw, I, I don't know how far I should go on this, uh, but I think it's probably fair game. I saw two things this morning. Somebody had posted an article on a, a blog that I read talking about making up robots to satisfy childlike robots to satisfy pedophiles. Right. Yep. Yeah. We, I've, I've wow. run across and that too. I also yeah. saw a thing where Thor in the Marvel comics is going to become a female this morning. Uh, I read that. Sentence. You, yeah. You're, you're thinking I'm crazy, right? No, no. I was just thinking that would be disappointing for the, for me. <laughs> well, I, I'm, but I think that this is, this is all part of the agenda and, I think it's all kind of fitting together, and it's like I said. I think things are going to get really weird, and it's it's going to seem like we're really, unfortunately, disconnected from reality. I I don't know, I don't know how else to say it. I just, I really never thought I would see a lot of this stuff, and it's it's unfolding so quickly with such speed, and there's an acceleration to things that it's it's kind of mind blowing. And then, I mean, and then you look at what's going on in the Middle East right now, Gaza and everything. And I mean, go read Zephaniah chapter two and Zechariah chapter nine and Ezekiel thirty-five and thirty-six and Isaiah seventeen, and tell me that you know. And then ask the question: Are these things in play right now, unfolding right in front of our eyes? Uh, at some point, people in the church are going to have to sort of stand up um, carefully after much prayer and deliberation and say, "Look." Uh, this is what the prophets talked about. This is exactly what is unfolding in front of our eyes. I mean, I think it's happening. 
And it's, it's a very difficult thing to say because uh, you'll then get accused of being date setters and that type of thing. So uh, it's a, it's look, it's an exciting time to be alive and I appreciate what you do. Gons, I would say on the transhumanism thing, uh, the gentleman that I mentioned, uh, I'll give you his name, but uh, that uh, your age of deceit too, where you talk about alchemy and, I think you might have mentioned hermeticism and that type of thing. You were right spot on where all this stuff came from. And it, and it manifests itself in the church through sort of a general systems theory like Peter Drucker brought in, and it's now the purpose-driven life and church growth. And, I mean, it's just, it permeates everything. Yeah. It's, it's a crazy time. Yep. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, John Holler, for coming on the show. We Thanks, appreciate Chris. talking to you. Where can people find more of your stuff? Where can they get in contact with you? Are you on the sure. internets nowadays? Yeah, I I do. I'm one of the administrators of Columbus Bible Prophecy Conference. I could be reached. Uh, I don't know if I should give my email address. Uh, you know, if people want to reach me, there's a John dot Haller J O H N dot Haller H A L L E R fifty four gmail dot com. And uh, the prophecy updates that we do, uh, you can get them through our church website, fbchapel.com, Fellowship Bible Chapel, fbchapel.com, or just type in all one word, fbchapel, at YouTube, and you'll come up with our uh, YouTube page where all of our teachings and conferences and things are are posted uh, free of charge. Awesome. John Haller, thank you so much one more time for coming on the show. Thanks, Basil. Thanks, God. God bless. God bless you. We'll talk to you again someday soon. Okay, thanks. All right. There you have it, folks. Thanks for listening to this episode of Canary Cry Radio. Make sure to tune in next time. But until you do, think outside the cage.